Well, good morning, everyone, or afternoon, or evening, or middle of the night, <laughs> as it happens to be. Um, so we're having a day long today, and we start with the format that we usually have on Saturday morning so that anybody who tunes in for the regular program still um, gets to participate in that. And, and what that is for those who are new is um, a Dhamma reflection and then some discussion, Q&A. And that happens, that goes to like 1030. And then at that point, everyone who's um, intending to stay online or in person uh, will be going into noble silence. And um, <clears throat> here at the meditation center, we'll be getting the meal ready and setting up some tables outside and chairs and have the meal offering. And the monastics will eat in here with our bowls and anyone who wants to can also sit in here or outside. It's gonna be a beautiful day here today. And, um, and I think most people probably have a pretty good sense of noble silence. And I also want to encourage that for everyone who's joining online to um, as much as possible, um, spend the day in noble silence and really use this time to reflect. I know the last couple of day longs, I haven't uh, asked people to be in no, noble silence. It seemed like those first couple of day longs, it was nice for people to have some sense of community and get to talk with each other a bit. But I also can, um, as any of you who have practiced with noble silence and, and uh, even a short retreat, like one day, <clears throat> how much deeper we can go if, if we stay more quiet. The other thing about noble silence is that it's not intended to be absolute silence. So as people are getting the meal together, if you have a question, quietly ask someone. It's like it's really a practice to think about what's worth saying or what really what really is good to say or to when when to connect um, and when not to. So we just keep that in mind. <clears throat> so I'm going to start by just offering some reflections. Uh, today the theme is changing, and um, it's fine with me if we use that for the title of this morning's talk and then this afternoon when we come back together around one o'clock. Um, I think I'll offer a guided meditation perhaps. Uh, there's also, for the people here, there's going to be some movement. Deborah has offered to lead people in some Qigong after the meal, or Qigong, Tai Chi, something, Qigong. Qigong. And, um, and then later, around 3 p.m., we'll have uh, some time together, a Q&A, before we, we um, maybe do a final meditation, depending on how many questions and as much discussion we want to have <clears throat> before we go. And people in the room, if you need more cushions, those green ones are good for your knees or legs or whatever, or extra under you. Yeah. Yeah, and um, during those longer periods, like from 1030 to 1, 
or in the afternoon from the guided meditation until we come back together at three. I really want to encourage everyone to do whatever sitting and walking and of course we'll have the meal all of it as mindfully and and as meditatively as you can. <clears throat> One of the things and I this is a little bit on the topic of changing you know everybody we we definitely change through our life. And as we develop whatever it is that we're doing with our time, we also change, right? We learn things. In the early years teaching meditation retreats, um, I tended to have a, a pretty, um, I'm thinking the words rigid, strict. <laughs> Not, it wasn't intended to be rigid or strict, but there'd be these really defined periods of sitting meditation and walking and there would be bells and you know all of that and then the last few years particularly starting at cloud mountain in the middle of the pandemic i taught a month-long retreat um and then and then other periods of time and i just started to relax that and give people you know a, two or three hours to really decide for themselves when is it the right time to sit and when is the right time to go do walking meditation, when's the right time to take a walk in the forest. Um, and and um, after the first month, um, this one man said to me, you know, I think I've been spoiled for all retreat, other retreats because having that ability to intuit um, what the body and mind are going to benefit most from uh, was really a, a nice thing. So if it feels like you're um, kind of left on your own for a little while during this day long, that's okay. Make sure that, you know, it's, it's working with our own mind and our own system, understanding what is going to be supportive as we deepen in the practice is, is really valuable. So as I said, I want to focus on changing and, you know, I don't know if you have ever felt this way in your life or if you've known other people that seem extremely resistant or feeling resistant to change. And, you know, some of the people in my life that I'm thinking of, you know, it, it seems like a tremendous amount of effort needs to go into trying to stay the same and to keep things mm -hmm. the same and when actually you know changing our habits changing our approaches changing our views and our perceptions this is actually natural and it's it's the learning of life and then you know when we look at the buddhist teachings it's constantly re really suggesting to us that we grow and develop and change. And I'm gonna give a second here because we've got another couple people coming through the door. Welcome, Audrey. Come on in. Thank you. And find a spot um, there are some chairs in the back over here if you okay. want a chair. Hi, Andy. You also prefer a chair? 
to a floor. Whatever you want. There's mats or and cushions. Good to see you both. So um, when we think about our growth and development in the practice, one of the one of the big challenges is to deal with, work with, even notice what it is that we do just based on our conditioning, how we see the world, um, you know, how we approach things. And when is it appropriate, when is it important to actually change something to to um, intentionally change and the indicators for that first and foremost is our suffering when we're suffering then we know there's something that we can change and want to change now i feel like as practitioners it's not just a matter of being willing to change. We have to be able to change, but we need to be eager to change. That eagerness of, I'm gonna develop these qualities that the Buddha you know, is showing me are so important. And I'm going to investigate why this, what I'm experiencing right now hurts or why I feel sad, angry, afraid, and what is it that I can change? How can I look at this differently, develop qualities and skills that can address this situation? How can I learn? <coughs> we have a military base nearby and they've been buzzing the neighborhood for a couple of months now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Things change, man. <laughs> and, um, you know, how can I... Um, I'm sure you can hear that online. Um, how can I develop um, the skills that will really... And, 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 and let go, how can I let go of what I'm clinging to that's gonna bring about peace and, and equanimity in this situation that right now is causing me suffering. So when we think about conditioning, um, if we bring to our to our conscious awareness, the fact that we're perceiving something or responding to things in a, a way that's just been very much conditioned into our process of who we think we are. <laughs> um, <clears throat> sometimes we feel like I'm making a conscious choice to do something or to be, uh, you know, like act, act in a certain way. But if I really think about it, like this is actually the way my parents acted or the way that, you know, it, it's, it's been a, a standard in my life. And then to observe and discern whether or not this is the way 
is most helpful or most noble to perceive this and respond, most realistic in our perception and most noble in our way of, of acting. So um, I like Ajahn Brahm's way of talking about this. He, he's very much a, um, feels very certain that most, almost all of what we do and say and think is conditioned. And we have like this little sliver of free will <laughs> which we can use to change. I think Ajahn Brahmali was using this. Maybe Ayachitananda will help with this because she heard him talk about, you know, you've got this huge, what, ocean liner or big barge or something? This is tanker shipping. Super tanker. Shipping ships. Yeah, giant. Yeah, by giant ship. This is you. This is your conditioning. This is your mode of operation. And then you've got this little tugboat, which is the free will. <laughs> Pulling it, turning it, you know, <laughs> and and that we need to make use of that. And you know, Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi says we have a modicum of free will. But a lot of the time we're an automatic pilot. You're really just following through with our conditioning. But when we're when we have this idea in mind that we can change and that it's and we can change for the better and we can change to the point of awakening that we can get enlightened and then really everything is different even along those stages of enlightenment stream entry once returning non-returning up to arahantship at the at the at this point of stream entry already there is such a change in the way we see the world in the way we respond and this is something that really i want to encourage for everyone change the way we're doing things moving in that direction of stream entry and and coming to that point in this lifetime but what does it take what kind of it takes that eagerness for sure and just the other night in the sutta study we were reading um the simile of the snake sutta in the middle length discourses and toward the end it talks about it talks about the different you know like um the different those four different levels of of awakening and also leading up to stream entry the people who are a dhamma follower or a faith follower and the way those are described in the suttas by the buddha is that a dhamma follower is someone who comes to the dhamma through learning through study through developing faith in the dhamma developing confidence in the dhamma through practice I mean, one of the things that so much many of us appreciate about the Dhamma is that you're not asked to accept anything on blind faith. And what you, how you accept the Dhamma is through reflective activity, really taking in what the Buddha said, taking in what we observe with the right perception to see what is impermanent as impermanent, what is 
suffering dukkha as dukkha, what is non-self as non-self, what is uh, ugly or beautiful according to Dhamma, that we actually see things in the right way. And then we develop the um, reflective acceptance of the Dhamma by by taking it in and thinking it through and working it through and observing it in our experience. It's still not the, the deep, direct experience of those truths, but it's an acceptance of, okay, I get this intellectually. And then as we practice more and we continue to like work with it, feel like it's kind of like kneading bread dough, you know, <laughs> you got to keep working it. And then, then there, the, the connect, the, 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 the lightning bolt, if you will, maybe that's not the right um, simile because it's, it's really, there can be this ongoing investigation that continues to solidify our understanding, but then there is something that happens that really drops it in and we see differently, even differently than we thought in reflecting on that particular principle of Dhamma that we're, whatever we're working with at the time. So this is a Dhamma follower. They come through that, developing that confidence in the Dhamma. And the faith follower that Buddha talked about as someone who develops confidence in the teacher, the teacher with the big T, the Buddha, and maybe his, his stand-in supporters, the ones who are really teaching Dhamma. But you're developing a faith in or a confidence in the person as you see them and this is the way I feel about the Buddha, as I, as I see the way the Buddha interacted with people and see the way he taught the Dhamma in so many different ways to reach the audience he was with at the time, and, and the way he lived, you know, the, the things he said to his attendants or his close disciples, and the way he didn't hold anything back from the teachings, and, and then, you know, like, the way he presented Dhamma and talked about different situations and then seeing those situations and those same kinds of things appearing in my own life and my own practice, you develop that faith in the teacher. Confidence is probably a better word because blind faith has nothing to do with this. The kind of faith that is promoted in some religions where you believe in something you can't see just because someone told you this is the way it is. That is not what the Buddha was teaching, and that's not how the Dhamma works. So that a better word maybe for sada, which is this faith, confidence, is, is probably the translation confidence is better. But it's very deep. So when a person is either coming through learning the Dhamma or they're coming through the side of confidence in the teacher and they're really eager to awaken, I think this is what it takes to be a faith follower or a Dhamma follower. And what it says in that sutta is, if that's the case, you will be a stream enterer before you die. 
It's got to have that fire in us to do it. And this is an eagerness to change. And so we know it's time to change when there's suffering. <clears throat> we know it's time to change when we see that we've got some conditioning that we want to want to shift. So how do you shift the conditioning? Um, when Ajahn Brahm talks about it, he says, this is the brainwashing. We're all operating under the brainwashing that we've had. That's our conditioning. And then you got to get different brainwashing. Well, obviously it takes free will to get the different brainwashing. <laughs> so don't neglect the idea that we do, do decide to do these things. But he said, you know, put yourself in situations where you're being influenced and conditioned by good people, by good practices, by powerful, positive influences. And to remember that everything that we do, we're training the mind, we're conditioning the mind. You know, when I was a software engineer, I knew I was training my mind to do that. Um, I got to a point where I didn't want to be training my mind to do that anymore. Um, not to say you have to quit your job, but learning how to use whatever we are doing with our life as practice um, is a beautiful thing to do. And it makes whatever we're doing with our life easier, better, richer, deeper. Um, and especially in the way we interact with each other. I have this little sutta, I'll show you just to, just a little touch of, you know, what it's what it means to, um, you know, have conditioning and be a, a, a source of really good conditioning. This is from the Anguttara Nikaya um, 348 called Mountains. And the Buddha says, based on the Himalayas, the king of mountains, great sal trees grow in three ways. And I don't know if you've ever seen a, seen a sal tree, S-A-L, sal tree. Um, they grow in Thailand. We've seen them and seen them blossom there. But you could think of any kind of tree you're used to, with the mighty oaks or the great redwoods or whatever. And it, it's, they grow in three ways. They grow branches, leaves, and foliage. They grow in bark and shoots, and they grow in softwood and hardwood. Based on the Himalayas, the king of mountains, great salt trees grow in these three ways. And then he says, so too, when the head of a family is endowed with faith, this is Sada, the people in the family who depend on them grow in three ways. What three? They grow in faith. They grow in virtuous behavior and they grow in wisdom. So any of us, we can reflect on the situation we grew up in. Some of us have parents with more or less sadha, more or less virtuous behavior, more or less wisdom. And we can make use of that conditioning. And we can also think of this in any other kind of context. If you look at your company where you work, you know, what are the leadership, what's the leadership doing? I've worked in 
companies where I think the leadership was very virtuous, very customer oriented, very interested in doing good things in the world, very interested in being generous, kind, supportive of their employees, and have worked in companies where the leadership is corrupt and they want to they want to manipulate the clients and they want to um, do things that are that are illegal and you know it's like, and it's interesting to see how the people who work there that that aspect of their potential comes out good or bad so when every one of us is a source of influence for others an example you know we can choose to develop our own what's faith mean here our own confidence in what's good in what's wholesome in what's holy our virtuous behavior our own wisdom we can we can also what whoever depends upon us whoever looks to us whether it's our children whether it's our even sometimes our parents look to us sometimes it's our it's our uh, neighbors sometimes it's our co-workers we can be an influence and this is part of conditioning it's the part that you know we take this stuff in whether we like it or not and others take in what we are offering too so the the verses here are just as the trees that grow in dependence on the rocky mountain in a vast forest wilderness might become great woodland lords so when the head of a family possesses faith and virtue their partner children and relatives all grow in dependence upon them so to their friends, their family circle, and those dependent on them. Those possessed with discernment see that virtuous person's good conduct, their generosity and good deeds, and emulate their example. So just think about it. This is it's about changing. We can as we grow, I know my father, I, I always admired how he was learning and making an effort to improve himself to the day he died. And this is what we can do. And at the same time, not be um, discouraged, disappointed, upset, feeling guilty or bad about anything we've been doing. Like, I love this, set the past to zero. <laughs> This is Ajangana. He was saying, just zero the past. <laughs> Don't spend, waste any time feeling bad about what we've done out of the conditioning of the past. And don't be hard on ourselves, but be inspiring to ourselves. You know, like really encourage ourselves to, to grow, to learn. And then I, I have one more sutta I want to share. This is also in the Angutra Nikaya. It's number five. I mean, the book of fives and number 10 called Disrespect. It starts with the negative. Mendicants, a disrespectful and irreverent mendicant. That's not a very good state to be in, I gotta say, <laughs> if you're a mendicant, but if you're a practitioner, you know, disrespectful and irreverent with five qualities can't achieve growth, improvement, or maturity in this teaching and training. And what five? A disrespectful and irreverent mendicant who is faithless 
shameless, imprudent, lazy, witless. They can't achieve growth, improvement, or maturity in this teaching and training. However, a respectful and reverent mendicant. So it's interesting that the Buddha starts there. You know, it starts with a certain kind of humility, reverence, respect. And we don't get very far if we're arrogant, if we're full of ourselves, if we think we already have it all, you know, down pat. In fact, the more enlightened people get, the more humble they become. And everybody likes humility, but how many of us want to do it? <laughs> you know, it's like, because we're trying to protect our ego and our, you know, like, this is a lot of suffering. This is a good indication that, okay, step back, put it down. What are you like when there's no facade? What are you like when there's no, like, trying to project something like that ego? Can you interact without that armoring? Because the real protection is your virtue. The real protection is your humility, your kindness. So a respectful and reverent mendicant, reverent mendicant with five qualities can achieve growth, improvement, and maturity in this teaching and training. What five? A respectful and reverent mendicant who is faithful, has sada, conscientious, that's hiri, we'll talk about that in a minute, and prudent, that's otapa. Hiri otapa is very important, two very important qualities. Energetic, that's in Pali, virya, and wise, panya. So if they're faithful, filled with faith, conscientious, prudent, energetic, and wise, they can achieve growth, improvement, and maturity in this teaching and training. So let's talk a little bit, I want to talk a little bit about Hiri and Otapa, essential for spiritual um, growth and development. And I've got a link here that I'm going to stick in the chat, I think. Maybe, maybe you can do that. Yeah, I think we have to open it in a couple blocks. Okay, maybe later. Let's read it first. <laughs> okay, well, uh, I guess we're not reading it first. <laughs> this is an article by Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi called The Guardians of the World. The bright guardians of the world are Hiri and Otapa. And they're these qualities of having... The Hiri is a self-respect. Like, you don't want to do things that are unwholesome because you have this self-respect. You don't want to pull yourself down in that way. And then Otapat, so the Hiri is more of this internal um, kind of reflection. It's about the present moment what you're choosing to do or to not do. But it's this internal, like, yeah, I don't want to do that. This is, this is your conscience in action. And then the Otapa part is, is more external. 
you you don't want to do things because you don't want the negative results. You don't want to have to hide something. You don't want the fear of retribution. You have the fear of retribution. You have the fear of the negative comma, the external results. And these two sides, you know, you want to be um, conscientious, the, the, um, the internal hiri, and you want to um, take care of your karma, which is the external, the otapa. See if there's anything else in here. So, hiri, the sense of shame. So, this is be a little, I'm a little, um, you know, a lot of times they'll talk about it as shame, uh, moral shame and moral dread. This is Bhikkhu Bodhi's translations, and that seems to trigger a lot of us Westerners who've been through enough shame. And so, you don't have to go there. Conscience is a better, probably a better translation. Okay, so I think that's probably all we need from that part. So one of the things that's valuable when we're looking at our own changing is to look back and see how much we've changed for the better. To really rejoice in that. Recognize that it's not always easy to develop in these ways, and that we've made a lot of progress. And also celebrating the small changes we make. Like sometimes I'll, I'll see something that I want to change, or another, besides suffering and seeing, okay, there's something I, I need to change here in order to get beyond this suffering, this um, attitude or habit. We also learn from what other people tell us. You know, they'll point out things that are causing problems. And that's another indication of time to change something. So how we accept feedback is um, very important to look at. And one of the things I've learned in monastic life is that um, if someone's giving me feedback and I'm immediately trying to explain myself, and, and it can really just feel like, hey, if they understood where I was coming from, they wouldn't be upset with me. But what that often comes off as is not listening. So I've learned over time to just take it in. Doesn't mean you have to agree or believe it. I tell people sometimes, you know, take it in over here on your shoulder. <laughs> Don't take it in here in the heart <laughs> right away, you know, like just hear it out. And sometimes it's valuable to respond and sometimes it isn't, even if it's not true. But you can look for like where this person is and what they're experiencing as much as you can discern it from what they're telling you and they're you know, whole body language and everything. And then really reflect on it and see, is there something here that I can improve? And then if I do see, okay, I want to change this. I want to change this way that I'm um, acting or thinking or 
speaking, then it's not always easy to get it right, right away. Most of the time we don't. We maybe we do it and then we catch ourselves. Maybe even after those words get out, <laughs> we catch ourselves. And then many of you have heard me say this before. I like this idea of in my mind, playing it over. Sometimes with a good friend, you can say, can we rewind? This is very helpful. I love the rewind method. If you have an agreement with another person that, you know, like when we, when we catch ourselves, things have gone down a track that I don't want it to go down. Um, there was a point at which it kind of went off the, off the track. Can we go back to that point and start again? And if you're both, you know, like wanting this kind of development, this is a really good friend, whoever it is in your life, then they'll let you rewind. And then you can walk through doing it in a way that's more skillful. And this is extremely helpful. So even if there's no one external to do that with, we can do it inside ourselves. Come back, okay, at that point, what would I have liked to say? How would I have liked to act it? And then play it through in the mind. And a lot of you know that I, I think of this as like the uh, dressage, dressage, you know, horse, horses running the steeplechase. And, you know, like when I was younger, I really loved horses and I had horses and sometimes I'd watch this on television and, you know, you see these riders taking these jumps on these amazing horses and, and then, you know, one gets to a jump and it's all time. That's how you win. It's not a, not like everybody's doing it at once, but you, it's like timed event. And then this horse, you know, it doesn't doesn't clear the jump or maybe box at the jump and pulls aside and you think okay they lost <laughs> you know that's that they're not going to win but instead of just walking off the course they start again and they they go back to that jump and they jump it and then they finish the course slowly but they do it and so i think this is what this is what i do in my mind i take my mind back to that point and meet the challenge in the way that I would like to meet the challenge. And that helps tremendously for the next time, the next time it comes up. And no matter how many times you have to go back and replay, no matter how many times we kind of like, it, it gets out there because we've got this very strong conditioning. Who knows how many lifetimes we've had the conditioning we have. This is how we can change. And sometimes, the mind gets more used to being trained in this way, and then it goes quicker and easier. And then, you know, after a, a while of doing it in the way you want to and, and listening maybe, or responding in ways that are kinder or whatever it is, at some point, maybe this old habit comes up again, not to beat ourselves up, not to think, oh, I've lost ground. It's not like that. It's just like this one slipped through. Okay, we'll come back. We'll come back and do it again. Have the patient endurance. We can see why the Buddha said that patient, patient endurance is the highest austerity. And it's like we really do need the, the patience with our mind. Um, 
you know, I really think of my mind like a small child or a dog I need to train or something. It's like, it just, it's got all this conditioning and we need to do some new, new pattern development here. And it, and what are we developing? Those qualities, all those qualities. The Buddha's got lists and lists of them, right? We're developing the five faculties. We're developing the four powers. We're developing the Noble Eightfold Path. We're developing the seven factors of enlightenment. Any place that you look in the suttas, any place you look in the Dhamma, the Buddha's talking about the, the advantages of developing generosity, virtue, the precepts, the Brahma Viharas, these, these uh, wings to awakening, all the bodhipakya dhammas. And this is, this we can do with a, a kind of eagerness, a kind of joy, really seeing the, the, the development and the benefit and seeing the benefit in the people we interact with. So I think I'll stop there and open it up for questions and comments. So is there anything you'd like to say or ask? I always find that's where things get deeper. <laughs> the questions, comments. I don't know if there are any hands up. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Ryan. <coughs> that that is nice. nice. Thank you very much. You're welcome. <coughs> yes, James. <coughs> so I was had a Dharma session this week um, which the leader was talking a lot about the, um, you know, the Buddha's advice on um, dealing with difficult emotions and the various ways in which we can do that. In fact, she was more of a psychologist really. So it was more of a, probably more psychology than Buddhism, but definitely um, related to it. But um, in, in, a, in a breakout room afterwards, I brought up the, 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 the thing about how, there's a difference between moods and emotions, you know, like um, how, how they, they seem very similar, but um, but there's obviously a fair bit of difference because emotions tend to be short-lived. They're sort of in the body, you know. I, 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 the the you know, the thought I came up with was the idea of moods are almost like um, you know wearing glasses of different colours. You know, they say about rose-tinted glasses, and they just seem to shape the way you see the world. And so we're we're, we're thinking, you know, because I, I guess I guess I have a lot of lot of low low sort of moods that probably um, negatively color my my life. And we were discussing um, how, how do you adjust this? You know, how do you how do you instigate change in these moods? Because they're just so much more un encompassing in life. You know, it's it's they seem so so constant. You know, they can last weeks or months or possibly even years, really. So, and. Um, some, somebody helpfully suggested the idea of like obviously re reconditioning yourself very gradually. They were saying about um, sort of bringing up um, gratitude 
um, in the mornings, for example, being being grateful for things. And and it actually tied in because I, I do a, a Zoom session with a, a Dharma friend that I fortunately managed to acquire. So we talk through these things. And we're, we're both... Um, we, we're both kind of on a, on a meta binge this week, or that's what we could have agreed to do. <laughs> and, and I think, I think, um, I think that's probably something that I really need to be digging into because you know, the more you do meta, the more you bring up that positive states of mind. How can it not sort of reshape this mood and therefore make those glasses that you see the world with that much more rose tinted rather than you know, dark and gloomy. Um, so I'm, 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 ma- I'm making more efforts in, in that, uh, that regard. Cause I, I know it's ridiculous. I honestly think that the meta is probably almost like a magic pill that would solve a lot of, of, of what ails me. And yeah, I always, I just, I've never quite got round to really getting my teeth into doing it. You know, it's, it's, um, it's like like maybe part of me is just so aversive it just doesn't want to let go of the, the the you know the aggravation the annoyance with all the all the you know things in the world that you know you know maybe maybe yeah it's it, it's probably it's probably like such a deep seated part of myself that, that to really really become infused with meta um, it, it would actually be letting go of a part of what I believe myself to be you know and yet I I, I think back and I I know. I, like the other morning, I I I, I did a bit and, and and sort of like into the day, I just went out in the world with a lot more of a positive sort of attitude. And and I know previously I've had times when because I, I, I have my main meditation in the morning, I've had times when when it's gone particularly well and I just go out in the world just feeling so much more loving, you know, and it's like, oh, why don't I want more of that? <laughs> I don't know whether there's a question in there really so much of a ramble, but um something that i should should be working on a lot lot more that's a great ramble james thank you because <laughs> it's it i think it touches all of us you know the um i like your distinction i think it's an important distinction between emotions and moods and i know that on a kind of um buddhist buddhist um intellectual dhammic debate level people could argue with me on what i'm going to say now but i really when i when we talk about the the kind of feeling i don't usually go to uh, painful pleasant or neutral it means a lot more to me to think about emotions you know what it feels like when there's there's joy and happiness, what it feels like in my body, what it feels like when there's fear, what it feels like when there's depression or sadness or grief or, you know, you name it. And for me, like you're saying, you can have uh, feelings come through, um, you know, like you're in a conversation with someone or you meet someone and 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 they're telling you about their their story, it triggers something in you and you feel the emotions, but that's not the same as a mood. And I relate the mood more to mental state. Like when the Buddha talks about mind, you know, I have a mind that's affected by lust or I have a mind affected by um, hatred or not, or a mind affected by delusion or not, or, you know, this, these different things. And, And it's certainly these are related, obviously. 
but that mood, like you said, kind of coloring everything. This is a very important, and, and the one of the problems I didn't mention is that I, I meet people who are like, you mean you can change that? You know, even something like they've got the habit of never, you know, really closing the car door when they take stuff out and then somebody else has to come along and do it or, or leaving stuff laying around the vihara. You know, this is the kind of stuff when you enter the holy life, you have to learn to change, you know, even if you... If you leave your shoes in front of the door for, you know, like 30 seconds, they're in somebody else's way. I leave something on a countertop. I come back, you know, in 90 seconds and it's moved because somebody else needed that space. You just learn. No, don't leave your stuff around. But you'll have someone who's like, oh, I can change that. I mean, I've been doing this all my life. doesn't matter. It's changeable. And I think your idea of, you know, I can really, I can change this negative outlook i can change this go-to of aversion i can change this go-to of checking out and going into some kind of delusive state and how well i like your your approach get a buddy <laughs> who maybe has similar tendencies then you both want to change and that really helps it's it's the difference between you know going to the gym and working out five days a week with someone else that you know makes sure you're there because you you, you do it more for somebody else sometimes than you'll do it for yourself and then you know like um even Ajahn Brahm, the other day I heard him given a talk where this advice he got early on was in the morning when you wake up, go in front of the mirror and smile. <laughs> Just push it up there. <laughs> you know, really <laughs> smile because it starts to release some of those chemicals. And, you know, it's like, you know, just to smile, just to bring up a thought of someone's kindness, to bring up a thought that, yeah, your nuns love you. <laughs> They really do. <laughs> and, you know, like to to remember um, those beautiful things and and bring that more into the mind. And, you know, it's so true what you're saying about how we can we can have this conditioning and it becomes so much a part of we think that's us. So it's another place where the whole understanding of not self comes in this is not a constant here no matter what we think about ourselves it's not it's a process if we put in new inputs we're going to get different outcomes but we cling i think that's the, like, one of my problems with getting into meta is that I kind of need to be in, I, I think it's very hard to just bring up from nothing. It's, you kind of have to be in the mood to do it. You know, I, I almost feel like, um, I mean, I, I do feel, feel plenty of positive sort of feelings during meditation, not necessarily might be characterized as meta, but it's definitely a mood thing. It, it's, it's hard to just flick a switch, but I, I suppose that's just a skill you develop. Like I've, I've developed some skill in meditation and with, with another four years and work I might develop some skill in matter as well and it'll become less of a mood thing and a bit more of a flick that switch kind of thing you know it's um maybe you've got four to start weeks. 
<laughs> yeah, maybe four weeks, James, not four yeah. years, but maybe, you know, <laughs> but it's, it's really true. It's, and it's okay to notice, yeah, I'm not really in the mood to be happy right now, mm. or I'm not really in the mood. Why do I like this suffering? What am I getting out of this? There's something I'm getting out of this. What is it? Is it a feeling of, you know, is there, because, you know, the ego likes to be there and be kind of like, I'm a thing. Is it like, that's what makes me feel like a solid self or, you know, like, what is it? What is it? And, you know, sometimes there, the external influences are also strong. We can be in a, in a, you know, it can be the weather, the cloudiness, the, it can be the, you know, like everybody knows there's a lot more suicide happening in the north in the winter than in other places where there's sun and, you know, people are moving and, you know, like more expressive and more, you know, like more um, expressive and loving and hug and all of that, you know, and it's like the whole the whole environment can be kind of a downer in some sometimes and then can we bring uh, up some light we're <laughs> practically describing england there you know <laughs> and and i I'm, you must be aware that moaning is a british pastime i did it? live there for a couple of years you know <laughs> yeah yeah i didn't know whether you you <laughs> but yeah it's a cliche but they like such a moan honestly it's oh yeah I, I wish i could be amongst positive people even if it was like a bit over the top sometimes you know i try i, I honestly i'm one of, one of the things i'm doing is actually trying to redirect people around me as well at work I, I'm, i've actually openly said right that's enough moaning what, what's good in your world i've said that more than <laughs> <a few times. laughs> yeah <laughs> it's just like oh, i get yeah it does get you down but then i, I think i some some the, one of the positive things I bring up in meditation is the idea that maybe I can have a positive impact on the world as well, even even in small ways. So, yeah, maybe. Yes, but, uh, yes, absolutely. Um, and you have a positive impact on us, so I know you can do it there. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank you, James. <clears throat> Yeah, so uh, conditioning is so hard, as you <laughs> mentioned, it's hard to change, it keeps coming back. So how do we work with it without losing confidence or without losing faith that things are going to change? Yeah. Because it it yeah. also feels a little bit fake when we try to behave in a different way when conditioning is telling us something, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And also it's not, it doesn't change even though we keep doing it's a long process it can be and um it can be a long process and like you're you know like you gotta fake it till you make it sometimes because you know like we at least because it really does change us if we say the things the way we want to say them or we do the things we the way we want to do them even when we don't feel it yet it then it starts to affect our feeling and our and our mental attitude. And it can be, you know, it can require perseverance, but we need to remind ourselves 
of the danger of maintaining this old way of doing it. Now, Buddha said this. He said that when he was developing as an unenlightened bodhisattva, <laughs> when he was developing, he, he would see something. And, the, you know, there's a whole series of things that he puts out there in a sutta. He would see the next thing that would be beneficial. And he would think, why don't I see that that would be better? Why don't I, why doesn't my mind launch out and do it? And he said, it's because I haven't seen the danger in not doing it. Or I haven't seen the danger. Like I remember particularly, he, he got to the point where he, where he was, you know, in my meditation, it would be better if I didn't have thought. Why doesn't my mind launch out and like, like put an end to thinking? Because I haven't yet seen the danger in having thought. And so this is part of it. And we remind ourselves but look at the downside of what I'm doing in this pattern, in this conditioning. The more we see that, the more, and, and sometimes, you know, like James is saying, and, and what I've said earlier, you know, like sometimes realizing how much better it is for the people around us can really be a motivation. It's like, you know, this is going to be better for my family, even if it's not something that we're directly doing with them or to them, but, you know, like we can, we can help the mind by reflecting on how much better it is when I do have this other, when I do behave in this other way. And we need to like keep giving ourselves that encouragement. So basically we have to be creative and determined. And if we need more determination, we have to rely on our good spiritual friends, whether it's the nuns or it's listening to positive Dhamma talks that really encourage this or reading the suttas where you see the Buddha is constantly saying, hey, develop this, develop that. You know, if you have, if you're acting like this, this way over here, you know, without the Hiri, without the Otapa, with, you know, witless, you know, it's like, wait a minute, I don't want to be witless. <laughs> you, know, like, you know, just, just really look for the encouragement wherever you can find it. And don't let yourself fall away. There's no benefit. And then even if necessary, think about what happens after you die. Where are you going to go? It's going to be in the same kind of trajectory you're on now. What do you want that to be? So, you know, we can encourage ourselves and, and to, and to be, I think we can encourage ourselves more when we're not so heavy and harsh on the negative side of our personality or our conditioning. You know, it's like, okay, that's the way it's been. I don't have to keep going like that. Even if it takes a while, it's okay. Sometimes it's good to think about the long view. This has been going on for lifetimes. And now I, I can't expect to change it in 10 minutes, but you know, let me just work at it. Any progress that I make in this lifetime is gonna be a huge benefit to this whole trajectory of my lifetimes. Again, my is, you know, that's the conventional way of talking about it. But yeah, we have to, we have to find ways to turn to the positive. You know that the when the Buddha said that, and I love this sutta, and most of you know this, so sorry, you're gonna hear it again. <laughs> so in the Book of Nines, 
Um, in the Anguttara Nikaya, there's this sutta number five called Powers, and it ends by saying, if you develop these four powers, you never have to have these five fears ever again. You never have to be afraid of, how does it mean? Yeah, you never have to be afraid, of, but there's a, the first one, you never have to be afraid of losing your livelihood. You never have to be afraid of losing your livelihood. You never have to be afraid of getting a bad reputation. You never have to be afraid of, you know, uh, of being in a, a group and, and, and feeling uh, uh, weak or um, frightened. You never have to be afraid of death and you never have to be afraid of what comes after death. That's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what are those four powers? And then, you know, usually I say, so do you want to know what the four powers are? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> knowing, knowing what's wholesome and unwholesome. Mm. Wisdom. That's the way he defines wisdom there. Knowing the difference between what's wholesome and what's unwholesome. Energy, having the energy to put that into action. Living blamelessly, so moral virtue. That there isn't anything, I mean, everybody gets blamed, even the Buddha. Um, people will blame. It's just like in America, you can sue somebody for anything. It doesn't have to make any sense. <laughs> but if you really aren't... Um, guilty <laughs> you don't have to worry about it <laughs> blamelessness and the fourth one is sustaining favorable relationships which was really a surprise to me when i first read that sutta it's like what i never saw this in a list before but it's this you know like really really being generous being kind staying connected with people people that you can look up to. The Buddha said, you know, find the friends who have more faith, confidence than you do and emulate that. Find the friends who are more generous than you are and emulate that. Find the ones who have more wisdom than you do and emulate that. You know, really, really find, build into your life the things that encourage you to develop in a good way. And then you become an encouragement to others to develop in a good way. And this is so precious. It's so worth it. It's nothing else you can do with your life. Can your whole bucket list other than this, because it's not worth anything to travel, to see this, to see that, to have this experience or that experience. You develop yourself. You don't have to control anybody else. That's where the action is. And you can do it. Up to you. Yes, Joyce. Oh, thank you for this topic. This is just so great. Um, I hope this applies. I think it does. Um, Ajahn Amaro was here in Berkeley um, sometime last year, and he gave a Dhamma talk, and I wrote it down on this old notebook, and I tore the pages out, and I just came across them recently. And it's it's really got me contemplating this a lot this week, and I think it applies. Um, he said, we tend to live in theoretical positions, you know, how we should be. 
And then he gave us an example. <laughs> I should be sitting straight. And he said, instead of I'm slouching, what you do is just be aware and the body will straighten on its own. Mm. And I just really, really like that. And there's so many ways in which it applies. And I would just like to have your reflections to see if it applies in the topic we're discussing now. Yes, I do see it. Thank yeah. you, Joyce. Thank you. What it reminds me of is the Upakilesa Sutta. Because in there, the Buddha shows all these different barriers to deep meditation. You know, like, oh, my, my concentration fell away when I had doubt arise. My concentration fell away when I lost focus. And so on and on and on it goes. But in each case, the Buddha says, when I realized that that would happen, then I made sure that that wouldn't, wasn't going to happen again. I'm not going to lose my focus again. And then you go, how the heck do you do that? <laughs> and it's just like what you're saying. You become aware of it. It's like a, it's a suggestion that you drop into the mind. And that's all that's needed. If you've developed developing your mindfulness such that the mindfulness takes care of it, you're, you're, you're instructing your mindfulness to not let the loss of focus come into the meditation again. And you don't have to do anything else. It's that suggestion like, oh, I'm slouching and the body raises up. Oh, I have this, I, I could lose focus. No, the body, the mind, the mind stays present, bright and alert. And, and so that's the key. It's like, we don't have to be so militant <laughs> with ourselves. We don't have to be harsh. We can, we can be, we can have some faith in the Dhamma that it's right here, right now. We tap into it when we open, when we're present, when we're available, when we're confident, when we're still. It's, it's okay. Yes, Joyce, did you want to say something? Um, yeah, it was just the, the part that I got that you're not saying very explicitly, but I think you're definitely leaning toward it, is like that whole thing about self-view, that I Mm -hmm. do these things it's it's just that it's occurring in awareness yes 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 then you can then you can deal with it but the eye gets in the way of doing that so that's it that's all yes and and that. what i want to lately you know so sometimes people really um talk to me about the problems they're having with the way ajahn Sumedho talks about awareness trust awareness you know pure consciousness then he gave a talk what is what the heck is pure consciousness <laughs> <laughs> but what I think is that when he's talking about awareness, he's talking about that open, present connection to Dhamma. There's like a deep well of the truth of the way things are. And when that is touched by us, it arises in us. And we don't have to do anything and it's not us doing anything there's no doer anymore so i think that's what you're yeah thank you for that choice it's not about a self when the ego is there we're up a creek without a paddle <laughs> we got up here it's like, okay that's why i think the mendicants had to start with respectfulness and what was the other thing this is the quiz <laughs> 
Conscientiousness? No, that was later. Reverence. Reverence. Thank you. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. So I think that consci that sorry, that that um respectfulness and reverence is that humility and openness to being shaped by the Dhamma. That's what happens when we really let go of the ego, of the self, of doing something. Cared one? Well, thank you. Thank you for this topic. I appreciate it. And um, I've been wondering, so I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this. Um, I, I feel like I live in this reality where, so when you're a disabled person, like the environment is set up for able-bodied people. And so everything is a struggle because it's not set up for me, you know, or other people like me. And, um, and so like when there's so much struggle and then, you know, on top of that, like the situation, my particular situation right now where, um, I'm pretty, I'm a very ill person. <laughs> like, you know, I, I normally am like, you know, in bed, uh, about 90% of the time. Um, and, um, but I'm not able to do that right now. That's what I need for my self-care, but I'm not able to do that because, um, you know, Medicare doesn't provide caregivers for people. Yeah. You're taking home. care of your mom. So, yeah, exactly. So it's like, so what I find, I was thinking about what James said about, you know, a mood or whatever. And it's like this orientation, um, that I feel like crying all the time, like, cause I'm so exhausted like all the time, I'm just exhausted. And I feel like everything is like climbing Mount Everest, you know, and, um, oh, I have to get up and warm up some food again. And, you know, when everything in my body cries out to rest, and I can't, I, you know, it's like not, not an option. And um, so I was just thinking about like, what, if you have some idea, I get the question in it is, knowing that that is how it is like the environment is not set up to support people um lots of people not just disabled people um but definitely disabled people <laughs> um and uh to to um find where there's ease like find you know like how to when you're in that state it's so much harder to find skillful states of mind you know um, because I want to cry. And so it's like, then like that just sort of sets me up for, um, you know, not being in a great mood, um, or getting upset about something that I wouldn't, it wouldn't really bother me, you know, at other times when I'm able to get the rest that I need. So I don't know how to infuse those moments with, um, yeah, it's good to try different things. Like, does it help to cry a little while? Does it, or does that wear you down more? Does it help to think about the other people? You know, you're a friend who's got the long COVID and the kids and the, 
my God, you know, I think about her sometimes. Um, the, um, the world you, you know so well, there are so many people on this planet that it's not set up to serve. I'm reading this book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. When it was interesting, I underlined a couple of paragraphs where it talked about how if you want to be an anti-racist, you have to have this incredible perseverance and determination and be constantly self-critical, watching what you're saying and doing or not saying and doing to put an end to racism. You have to like really be, you know, like listening and working with, you know, and it's the same thing we need to do in changing in accord with Dhamma. And it's like we have to be on it all the time with ourselves in a way, not not harshly because it doesn't help. But in your case, what you're talking about, first of all, my heart is there with you in that. And I and I think all of us need to do everything we can to set up the conditions for everyone in this world and not just blindly continue to enjoy our comforts without having that awareness of standing up. Because the Buddha did too. He stood up against, you know, the caste system and every other different kind of superficial difference and brought it to a a focus of nobility that comes through any human being. So I don't know if it helps to think in those broader terms sometimes. And to We always have to acknowledge what we're feeling because suppressing it doesn't work. Feel it to some degree, but know when the turning point is so that we're not clinging to those feelings and those thoughts. I know you're you're coming to things like this. You, you soak up the Dhamma whenever you can. That's got to be a lot of help. So I think I think finding the ways, the connections you can make. You know, really maybe those four powers. Thinking about what you can do in that regard. The energy there isn't the physical energy. It's the mental, like shifting to the wholesome, as much as possible. Maybe that's. Maybe that's not an energetic, maybe that's not like a high energy effort, but a, a small movement that makes a big difference. I mean, thinking in those terms, we have to really monitor the mind because we, whatever our situation is, whether, you know, like we, people, everybody, we're going through all these changes that life throws at us, whether it's our partner suddenly getting Alzheimer's and dementia, maybe suddenly isn't the right word, but they're going down and you got to be there to take care of them. Sometimes when we're parents, we've got young children with problems and we have to be there no matter how badly we feel. There's all kinds of situations in life, you know, and, you know, like, I don't know where I was going with that. Do you know where I was going with that? Oh, darn. (laughs) Sometimes even my auxiliary brain fails me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's very good most of the time though <laughs> but but you know like looking at what it is what it is that we can 
what it is that helps and different things help at different times. So like, you know, people come and talk to us about all kinds of things that happen in their lives. And there's a tremendous amount of courage in all of us, in human beings, and a tremendous amount of fortitude. We can actually do and endure so much than we think we can most of the time. And to remember that it's temporary. The situation with your mom's not going to last forever. Um, you know, looking at the, the tenderness in it, that's also nourishing. Um, looking at the changes that, that we've made in the past that have helped us, all the practice we've done helps us in the, in the, in the clutch, you know, like when, you know, and it may not feel like it's there. It may, you know, sometimes people are awash in tears and stress, but actually their practices buoying them up um, to get through it. And it's hard, but there's a resilience. And sometimes I think about the forest masters who, you know, went out into the, you know, really, really creating hardship for themselves in a sense by living in the rough and, you know, meditating in where the tigers are living and the, you know, all this stuff and, and trying to face the attachments to comfort, attachments to getting what we think we need or not getting what we think we need. Um, you know, I mean, I just, I just want to encourage you to put some highlighter on the small good things and remember that you're strong and that you have friends and that you have a lot of wisdom that's been developing over the years and that everything that you're having to walk through is impermanent. Thank you, Aya. That's really helpful. Yeah. And I know, I mean, I've changed my mind so much. Like until 10 years ago, I pretty much wanted to kill myself every day. So, and I changed that, you know, I changed my mind. Yeah. So I know it's possible. And what an important example that is, you know, like who knows who's going to listen to this over how much, how much time this is going to be out there in the, in the world and who's going to have that experience of every day wanting to kill themselves and to know there's a way out of that. So thank you. Misty. Um, I had a question that uh, is probably unrelated, but um, we were we were talking about Ajahn Semedo, and he often uh, mentions, <coughs> mentions Sakaya Dithi. Mm -hmm. um, Sakaya Dithi, the um, identity view. Mm -hmm. um, can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it's the idea that somehow this body and mind and all of its kind of um, faculties and aspects are a self. That's, that's the view, the self view or the identity view. 
that is completely uh, destroyed upon stream entry. And so how do we practice with that eagerness and intensity to change that perception and view? It's to really look at the body very directly and see the changing nature of it and the falling apart of it and the and the unbeautiful side of it and the um, necessary uh, detachment from it to have any kind of happiness, peace, and stability, and also the other the other khandas, you know, not taking our our feelings, our thoughts, our ideas, our great creativity or whatever we think our, you know, like abilities are as something concrete, settled, permanent. It's it's more like a process, right? It is a process or a whole collection of processes. A collection of processes. yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, there's nothing, there's nothing stable there. You, you set, take it all apart and it's, it's a bunch of pieces that, you know, are constantly influenced by other things and there's conditions there holding it together and it's all going to fall apart. So it's, it's to really kind of take that in first intellectually, then, you know, at a deep level and wake up. Yeah. Wake up. Wake up. <laughs> I I want to wake up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you're working on it, that's for sure. <laughs> thank good. you. Yeah, thank, thank you, Misty. Lukan? Yeah, uh, so much to, uh, so many thoughts with all the conversation that just happened. Um, uh, uh, you know, so I, I've been through hell in the last few years and back. And some things that I found helpful, I mean, it's, it's uh, uh, you know, everybody's situation is different. I don't pretend to know what others have gone through. We go through our, uh, I went through my personal hell, right? Custom made and tailored for me. Um, some things I found to be super helpful. Um, uh, uh, Ajahn Somedo uh, speaks of the Kanti Parami as, uh, you know, being at peace with a painful situation. I thought that was so inspiring to aspire to. You know, can you can you can you literally have the world fall apart around you and stay calm? And you probably can't, but uh, uh, you know, just the attempt to do that is great. And I'm sorry that like so many thoughts on this. Um, <laughs> Uh, Shinsen Young has written this incredible book, uh, 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 The Science of Enlightenment. He used to be a Zen monk. Mm-hmm. Um, and he puts mathematical equations to, <laughs> uh, to uh, uh, the practice. And uh, uh, one of the things he says is, uh, you know, a pain multiplied by equanimity. And maybe it's not pain, but it's sometimes dukkha, I think. It's suffering multiplied by equanimity, uh, opekha, is equal to vishuddhi, or the purification of the mind. And that's, mm. I mean, basically his idea is if you can actually be in a really bad situation, and he, he speaks of an experience of somebody who uh, who was dying of, I, I don't know exactly what the ailment was, but the, uh, the ability to be able to face uh, such I mean, I can't even imagine it. Situations with a uh, with a, a relatively peaceful state of mind and how that is transformative. Uh, yes, 
So I, I think it sometimes sounds, you know, you made this point about people will say, really, can I change this one thing about myself? So it's you know, not leaving the car door open. But it's, uh, yeah, yeah, I think uh, to me, the, uh, the, the power of the Buddhist path is there are things which people say it's not possible to do that. It's not possible to be in hell and not, you know, to be, to be in a really bad situation and not be upset. But the point is, I think what they actually say is that, you know, uh, just because, what is it, you know, like, uh, you know, you, you can, you can, uh, uh, you can actually be in a very bad situation and still not be uh, affected by it, right? All your Tibetan monks who would have gone through uh, torture for decades. So Yes, yes, thank you. Sorry, a bit rambling, but yeah. No, thank you for that. It's so true to, to be able to accept what's happening now, to accept the situation, to accept our own mind, I mean, one thing for sure is we have to accept the, our mind, the mind we have, and it doesn't. Then, then we then we make changes, but first we accept. To be at peace with the way things are is huge, and and you can feel the relief as soon as you do it. As soon as you stop fighting the situation, change. It's not about fighting the situation. Even changing something as big as racism. It's not about fighting it. It's seeing the way it is. Being with, and, and it can be even, as you're saying, even more poignant when we're, when we're in it ourselves. You know, that, that point where your long-term partner says they don't want to be with you anymore. Or your, your finances just fell apart or you just lost your job, or you got that diagnosis, or whatever it is, if you can just be with that, take it in, see what you can do to, to feel it, and then do what you can to let go. To let go enough to just accept that first before you take the steps you need to take. It's huge. And like you said, to be in a situation where things are really tough and there's always a silver lining, oddly enough, there's always good in every situation. There's always, you know, in, in these major crises that we experience, whether it's some kind of climate disaster or it's human caused, well, it's all human caused, I guess, but you know, like the 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 kind of social unrest and all this kind of stuff there's always something good that comes out of it there's always noble action there are people who are kind and generous there's there's you know and to see those things that are positive and to yeah. be able to be with it all um yeah. with patience and kindness this is huge it's more than huge. And that gives us the space we need to cultivate in those experiences. And again and again, people talk about how the practice, you want to call it that, or the Dhamma rises up in us in those moments. You know, that's part of the conditioning we're giving our mind day by day as we practice and put our attention on Dhamma. 
And in those really challenging times, there's a good chance that we're going to feel the Dhamma more, more fully. Someone who just had a death of someone very close to them was saying how beautiful the experience was and how thin the veil becomes between this world and the next. And it's true. There's a holiness in it. I mean, that doesn't mean everybody's going to have a, a, a beautiful, kind of beautiful death. But it's like being with the way it is, being with the way it is gives this opportunity for the truth of the way things are to arise in us. So looking for the parts that are wholesome, beautiful, inspiring, onward looking, you look at those qualities of the Dhamma, you know, apparent here and now, timeless, leading us onwards, available to be experienced by the wise here and now. That is here with us all the time. One of the big changes we make, even in the moment, is to be present to that. I think that's what Ajahn Sumedho is talking about. That's trusting awareness or trusting Dhamma, trusting our access to Dhamma. Yeah. So yeah. I went way over time. Thank you everyone for being so patient. And um, we're gonna continue with the day long now. And um, please uh, let us know you can, um, Write it in the chat if anyone wants their sharing to be omitted from the recording. And we'll hang on for a little while to see if anyone says that. And um, thank you all for your practice. It's incredibly beautiful. And then we'll come back to the Zoom session at 1 o'clock and continue from there um, for those of you in a time zone where that works for you <laughs> and um and i think maybe at that time a guided meditation but we'll see we'll see what comes up so take care everybody <laughs>